This is episode 6A of Free As In Free. Hello and welcome to episode 6A of Free As In Freedom. The astute amongst you will already have noticed that I am not Bradley Kuhn, nor am I Karen Sandler. This is producer Dan, and I'm just jumping on because they asked me to give you a quick message to let you know that this episode you're about to hear is a live show from Seagull uh, in Seattle, Washington, and it was recorded in November of last year. So, I guess now I can get back to being the power behind the power. You know, the basically I'm the Illuminati of all of this, um, and I better go and get on with these trade deals. Oh no, I've said too much. Okay, enjoy the show. Live from Seagull, it is free as in freedom. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. And this is Free as in Freedom. This is the live Free as in Freedom. I want to say, and we're back. This is our first live show in the history mm. of this podcast. And we have a live, well, that's no, not live. It's not it's a, live. It's a live studio it's audience. It's not live to you that are hearing it right now. It is live to the studio audience here. Filmed before a live studio audience. We are not filming it. It is recorded before a live studio audience. With all the surveillance we have, probably someone's recording it. Oh, that's... Well, okay. So probably like someone's doorbell cam somewhere is recording me right now. uh, If there's a doorbell. Maybe there's something in the room. There's a projector in this room that's probably okay. Somebody's phone is clearly recording The surveillance state is recording us. So uh, other than that, though, this is just audio, no video. But we are here to take questions from attendees at Siegel. But before we get to questions, let's talk a little bit about this conference we're at. It's a great conference. Um, oh, wait, you can cheer. It's a great conference, is isn't it? it? Is it a great conference? Is this a great conference? <laughs> uh, it's especially cool because it is a volunteer-organized conference, and um, and it's a, really a community conference. It's We're here on a Saturday. It is free to everyone who wants to come, free as in no charge. Um, and uh, and it has a lot of really great software freedom-focused talks. And, and it is a conference that is you said everything i was trying to think of something else i could say but you covered it all it is free to attend free software focused we didn't miss anything well i would also (laughs) just say that like that we increasingly need conferences like this because we have had so much corporate control over open source that having these community venues where we can talk about the social movement of software freedom and get together and, um, you know, and, and, and have the entire microphone without that kind of, um, that kind of influence is more important now than ever. We have three microphones, four, four microphones about free software in this room right now. We control those microphones. <laughs> but you're absolutely correct, Karen, that we, uh, and some people in the room here at the at, in our studio audience, have many times been to these corporate events that are 
basically not run for the community. This is run by the community for the community here uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, yep, and the talks really reflect that. And I would say that also because it's a regional conference, because it's local, I mean, I think it, it has an energy that's really different than those corporate conferences too. And so we are here to take questions. We have we had uh, questions submitted to us uh, online. We have people have been leaving cards at the registration table with questions. But also we have people in the room that want to ask questions. So those that are willing to have their voice broadcast as part of the podcast can ask questions here in the room, uh, and we're going to hopefully answer them. Well, we we hope anyway. And if you would like to identify yourself when you ask a question, feel free, but no pressure. Yes. Uh, my name is Carol Smith. Uh, my question is, uh, so the holiday giving time is about to be upon us pretty soon. And it's certainly on my mind uh, what or free software or other charitable organizations I will be supporting this year. Uh, so I have a two-part question. Uh, one is, can you tell us a little bit about how it's been being a nonprofit this year, uh, particularly in light of some of the tax changes that happened at least in the U.S. last year? Uh, and then second... Uh, anything we should know about giving to the organization this year? Carol, uh, Carol has given us a nonprofit geeky question, which we have often geeked out about nonprofit stuff. So and an opportunity to shill. That is true as well. Mm -hmm. The second part is that. But to the first part, I think it's a, it's a good question. Um, Carol's bringing up the point that there were changes in tax deduction. Um, and what happened was, for, for those of you that are uh, geeky uh, among our listeners, which we have many, about uh, the issues of how charities work in the U.S. So we're a 501 conservancy where Karen and I work as a 501c3 charity. That means donations are tax deductible, which we talk about a lot of times on the podcast and it's on conservancy's website. Uh, but uh, the the way tax deduction works in the United States um, is you, to take advantage of it, do this thing called itemizing deductions on a thing called the Schedule A uh, of the 1044 and the people file, uh, which is different than the Form 990 the charities themselves file that we talked about before. Uh, hey, I told you it was an IRS geeky question. Uh, but this, but also, if you don't standardize, you get what's called the standard deduction. And the standard deduction was, uh, was changed. And it's actually less advantageous for a lot of people now to itemize deductions. So if they're taking the standard deduction, it doesn't really change how much they get off, taken off their taxes when they give to charities this year and last year as well. Yeah, but last year was the first year that this went into effect. And I think people didn't really... Uh, understand how it was going to affect their taxes. So I think this year um, will probably be more indicative of whether it will have any real impact. But I would note that a lot of the donors to Conservancy are outside of the U.S. and they donate even though there is no uh, generally no uh, benefit in uh, like a deduction. And I think that um, I, I would say that I think that the people who donate to Conservancy, you're all really special in that you're like so in the know, like who has heard of Software Freedom Conservancy to begin with? And that understands why what we do is so important, right? Like, or I, I'd like to think it's so important. But and so I think the people who donate really get it. They're like, um, you know, just like a very knowledgeable, very focused, Deb is taking a picture, so I'm smiling, um, very focused kind of donor. And I think that's really unusual. And so I don't know that the deduction is going to make such a big difference. I think that folks that really care about software freedom are going to continue to donate to concern. I hope so. 
And after years of being a, a nonprofit person and working for various charities, I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that a lot of people like the idea of the deduction more than they're really worried about whether they actually deducted it. Uh, the number of times uh, I, people have told me that they cared about it, but then didn't even ask for the receipt or otherwise didn't didn't bother to deduct it. I think it's more of a conceptual thing. Uh, and also, I think that the fact that you have an organization that's uh, received 501c3 recognition from the IRS is actually the more important issue than whether you get the tax deduction, because that means there is a certain amount of scrutiny and you are required to act uh, both as employees and agents of the organization uh, in the public good to make uh, the world better and to help uh, the constituency that you're trying to serve through that charity. Yeah, and there's some minimal degree. Oh, I'm so sorry for interrupting you. I thought you were done. Oh, well, I, uh, I am. Okay. Um, and there's some minimum degree of transparency, right? Like you have to publish to so, like what you're doing with the funds to some extent. And I think that's, I think people get a lot of confidence from that too. And I think, I think in a situation with free software to get to the second part of Carol's question, uh, that, that there, there really, uh, there, there really is not a lot of, you know, government funding to free software anywhere around the world. So the charities that do the work of free software are incredibly important, not just in the United States, like Conservancy is, but around the world. Finding these organizations and supporting them financially is an important thing. And, uh, and volunteering for them if you have time, uh, if you don't have time volunteering with your, with your money. Yep. I think by the time this winds up getting produced and published, we'll be in the thick of our fundraising season. So if you haven't donated, please think about doing that. It makes a huge difference to us. We're like this organization that relies almost entirely on the, our supporters like Carol to, to promote the organization. We don't have anybody on staff whose job it is. So it's a, it's a, it's a big deal. We don't have any marketers, you know, anybody who is, uh, is, is hired to do specifically that. So. So do we have more questions from our studio audience uh, that anyone wants to ask? We have the pre-submitted questions that we can move to if folks prefer. Hi. So um, given your advocacy work and also your deep knowledge of free and open source software licensing, I'm very interested in not so much what you think of the ethical licenses that people are putting forward, but given the non-viability of them as free software licenses, what are some directions that people could go in that seem viable to you? So I think, uh, so I'm actually, I'm paging. Uh, Don't forget yeah. to talk into the mic. I'm paging through <laughs> the, uh, the pre-submitted questions I have because we got that question as a pre-submitted one, which now we can take it out as well. Uh, be, and I think it, these, this has been a strange year, I think, generally for free software because of this interest in... Uh, it, which is surprising to me. So, the, so the, the licenses uh, that we've used for years and looking at problems in free software as licensing problems, I think I personally was uh, part of the problem in this idea that you can solve all free software policy issues with a license. I think what showed me that wasn't correct is the clear need for code of conducts in projects and the need to monitor people's behavior and the way they interacted in projects and have a system whereby when bad and negative things are done or said to uh, people in a project to have a way to make sure that that's uh, taken care of and that people are safe and feel safe to be able to contribute to a project. Those are all incredibly important issues, probably some of the most important issues we have in free software right now. None of that should be in the free software license. Like if somebody were proposing 
to put the code of conduct as part of the GPL, I would say no. Those are two different documents doing two different things and handled in two different ways. The license of the project should be GPL, and then you should separately have a code of conduct that has a clear enforcement and clear way of operating. I think the issues about I don't want my software used by, say, ICE because they're detaining people or whatever it is, whatever the social justice issues that you care about, which are, of course, very important social justice issues, I don't think using the copyright license of the project to address those questions makes any more sense than it does to make sense putting the code of conduct into the GPL. Yep, I think that what we're seeing is that as more people wake up to how bad the state of our technology is generally, there's sort of this need to think about the ethics of our technology overall. And I think that um, I think that it's actually been a failure of the free software movement that we haven't been able to articulate better the ethics of our social movement. And I think it indicates everything about how um, how corporations have co-opted our message and um, and how open source has become something that businesses use to get their markets, uh, to get their products to market. I think that that's sort of reflected in this gap where it's sort of like, wait a minute, software licensing is a tool to accomplish some of these ethical problems, but we haven't actually achieved as much as we had hoped with those licenses. And so we have this like area where we've got like a little bit of a gulf. And I think that the fact that so many people are interested in those kinds of licenses, um, even though I, I agree with what Bradley said, I think that um, I think that the fact that there are these drafts coming out, I think is actually a good sign because it shows that people are wanting to engage generally in how technology fits in society. And we need to engage in those discussions rather than sort of saying, oh, well, that's not a free software license. I think we have to sort of, you know, recontextualize that conversation. And the final point on this is that is that I, I've yet to see one of those licenses proposed by someone who has um, substantial experience doing free software license enforcement. Uh, so I've spent a lot of time in, attempting, to, mostly attempting to enforce the GPL, often unsuccessfully. <laughs> and I think one of the problems we have with free software licenses today is we are still trying to figure out the proper structure uh, to fund and make sure that enforcement is done in the public good. There are lots of people, in my view, misusing things like copyleft licenses to enforce them for their own monetary gain. But if your goal is to enforce the GPL to, for public good, which is what Conservancy does, it's a hard thing to get done and it's a hard thing to fund. I have absolutely no idea of anyone proposing a plan. Oh, I'm going to put this additional social justice clause in my, my license and I have a plan for its enforcement if that agency or whoever I'm trying to work against is actually going to violate the license and try to use my software. How exactly are they going to stop them? I, I, I don't know. I don't know how they're going to succeed at that. Uh, anyway, so it's, it's even if you think it's the right thing to do to put these clauses into free software licenses, I don't think it's actually viable as an, enfor an enforcement scenario in the current enforcement climate. Yeah. Nonetheless, I think that these conversations are extremely important to have. And I think we're just at the beginning of having these discussions. Um, I know we're going to be discussing some of these topics at Copy Left Conf this year. So if you're um, around FOSDEM in Brussels in February, uh, consider staying an extra day to um, to stick around for Copy Left Conf. And I think um, that'll be a perfect time for us to take the discussions to the next level. I think meeting in person and having some of these tough discussions when you're face-to-face -face is so much easier um, and more productive. Okay, so we have another question, I think, from the audience. Yeah, this is a, kind of a follow-on to that last one. 
Um, what are some strategies we might could employ to stop folks that we uh, don't want you to use our software from basically committing what we would consider to be evil acts with it? So I, I think that we should be open to uh, a like every other strategy to get that done. Here's a great example. As somebody in one of those discussions I read uh, about, uh, I think it was specifically about the the question of ICE using software uh, from the FOSS community, uh, was uh, basically a complete boycott on bug fixes, improvements that are requested from a particular agency. I think that's totally reasonable. If somebody files a bug and it's clearly on behalf of an entity that's doing something you think is wrong, I absolutely think you shouldn't, uh, certainly shouldn't volunteer your time to fix that particular bug or add that particular feature. Um, and I, I think that if we focused on writing types of software that are really geared more towards individual users, because I don't think ICE wants you know a particular app that does something that, that the average person would want. They are probably, <laughs> if they're using any FOSS at all, which I haven't even seen anybody argue that these entities are using FOSS yet, but if they are, they're using like cloud infrastructure FOSS or something like that. So I think, I think that if we focused our free software development on things things that the individual user needs, we would probably not run into this problem so much because there would be a lot fewer situations where someone who was doing something we thought was bad is actually even bothering to use the software at all. There's a lot of talk about uh, unionization in the tech space, and I think that at the very least, we should very strongly consider ethical societies um, where uh, developers can join an ethical society and um, and together thoughtfully decide what issues are, are ethical to work on and what aren't. And then we'll have a lot more power as an industry to be able to influence corporate and other actors. And so I think that that's a real way that it's sort of not in the licensing, but it's, it, you know, I think in general, if developers were empowered to, um, to speak up within their employment relationships, I think that that would go a really long way. We have another question from the audience, it looks like. Yes. So um, maybe this isn't a, a good question. I don't know. Uh, I'll let you decide. Um, so my name is Eric Hopper, um, and I'm curious as to how a the Software Conservancy decides uh, to take on a project or uh, leave a project. And the project I'm most familiar with in this regard is Mercurial. And so if, uh, like... That as a specific example would be very helpful because then I could correlate with things that I know. So historically, I think it was different than it is currently. I think when we when Conservancy was formed, uh, there was lots of people involved in the formation of Conservancy. Uh, it was designed to be a fiscal sponsor nonprofit charity for all comers, more or less. And the reason it was designed that way is absolutely no one was doing that in free software. No one had put an organization together and said, hey, you've got a project. It's currently an unincorporated <laughs> entity. It needs a home. Welcome all applications. Uh, and that's what we did. And Mercurial joined around that time. Um, I think what's changed over the years is there seemed to be a new entity every day offering these services out there in all sorts of different ways, not just in charitable ways, but in for-profit ways and trade association ways and so forth. VC-funded ways. <laughs> Indeed. Mm -hmm. um, so we're at, a, we're at an interesting point where the service that we, was unique that Conservancy had uh, is not that 
necessary anymore. So our focus now uh, in newer projects that apply is finding projects that are strategically important for the future of software freedom and projects that are really aligned with Conservancy's advocacy mission for software freedom. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that we're, you know, it's still a, a process with Conservancy. We've got pretty limited resources, and it makes sense that we try to apply them where, uh, where it'll make the biggest difference. And you mentioned projects that have exited Conservancy. Uh, we are on the constant lookout for any problems that come up in projects. We have a charitable mission to benefit the public. Uh, there are lots of rules that the IRS uh, has, as well as our own internal rules, about avoiding projects that are under the control of one corporation or an oligarchy of corporations. And we have had situations of projects that I won't name, <laughs> uh, uh, specifically, that have, uh, over time, become more con under the control of single companies. And we're uh, basically, as watchdogs, constantly watching out for that within our own projects to make sure we don't have a project that was used to be more community oriented and now is basically under control of one company because a trade association or for-profits fiscal sponsor is a much better option for a project like that. Yeah. And similarly, if a project has a lot of problematic people and <coughs> excuse me, I've got a bad cough. Um, so uh, yeah, I think if, uh, if a project has problematic people who, um, who are saying misogynistic things on their, on their, uh, project mailing lists or are rude in various ways, they're not a great fit for conservancy either. Um, or if we can't really articulate their, uh, the project's contribution to software freedom, you know, sort of, these are the things that we kind of look at as an overall uh, mechanism. And I, I think it's because we're most focused on this idea of in order for software freedom to be successful, um, projects must encompass all of these things. They must be inclusive and they must forward software freedom. And, um, you know, and so that's, that's sort of where we're focused. So we, we should, well, we'll go back to some audience questions in a minute, but we should, because people pre-submitted questions in writing uh, who didn't want to speak out uh, loud on the show and they may be in the room. Uh, so, uh, and we have sorted those and we won't get to all of them probably on the show, but we will answer them hopefully on future shows. Uh, but we got, and I wanted to do this one first uh, of the written questions because uh, we are actually at a venue that's a, uh, a school. And this question is, how do you respond to your school threatening to flunk you for not using their compulsory proprietary software? So I, I really wanted to address this because I, I, I spent some time early in my free software advocacy career working with students who were in this problem. Uh, and it started to come up quite heavily in computer science departments in the early 2000s when I first saw it, um, where you had to use some proprietary tool as part of your class. And I, I worked with a student at the time who worked pretty hard uh, with the faculty to solve the problem. Uh, they were actually able to get uh, permission to use a different system uh, uh, for whatever the computer science class was uh, to do a similar thing to meet the requirements of the class. So if you're talking specifically about a specific class, probably you know in computing, where there's a tool that the class uses, one, if it's an elective, avoid that class, obviously. Uh, but if it's, a, if it's a class you have to take, talk with the press professor from the very beginning and work through what your concerns are and why free software matters to you, why you don't want to use it. So I think that's the way to handle that. Yeah. And there's, um, there's a group called teaching open source, which is a conservancy member project. And it's a bunch of professors who have gotten together to forward software freedom and they, um, and they incorporate open source into their curriculum. And that's sort of like their, their mission. And so they might be a, a good group to encourage faculty to get involved with to understand why proprietary software is so dangerous and why it has no place in education. And so the, the other type of question this uh, question might be asking about is the situation where 
administrative aspects of the school are around proprietary software. I, I am old enough that when, even when I was in graduate school, um, there was an automated system for registration, but it was by telephone, uh, which was really fun because there were all these little recordings of, of different people saying the names of the department. So you would type in the department name and I was in the department of um, computer engineering and electrical engineering and computer science. And the time they had to say it was a certain amount of time to fit the IVR. So there would be this uh, secretary that I actually knew who it was, and she would say, like, oh, that's my department, okay. Um, but it fit that little, like, like one second, uh, or less than a second uh, slot that went in. So, but now I presume that these, all the universities probably have online registration systems you have to use that are proprietary software. And for that, I think I would refer people to the talk we gave here at Siegel earlier today, which is also a, a very similar talk is recorded in some of our back catalog of, of podcasts where we talk about living in the world where you basically to operate in the world you have you that you can't do it without using proprietary software and we have a bunch of recommendations and stuff like that about that issue in those uh, former earlier podcasts yeah and i would say like generally faculty want to have you engage with them and want you to approach them and tell them your concerns and it may be something that that professor or teacher hasn't even thought about before. And it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, an aggressive negative thing. And I, I, I can tell you that um, uh, because I talk about having been pregnant, I assume most people surmise that I have children. <laughs> um, but uh, I, uh, you know, and I engage with, um, with my daughter's school quite regularly, just in a very positive, friendly way of saying, you know, this is a problem because this is proprietary software. And there are these options where you can do it without proprietary software. And that would be beneficial. And have you ever thought about trying that? Or also saying, actually, studies show that having kids in front of computers is not great for their education. And so while you're trying to use proprietary software, which is really problematic, in general, it also would be better for the students not to be using that program at all. And I've actually had some really good success with getting a away from some proprietary software for that that reason. And so I think you can be, you know, you you can be nice about it and friendly about it. And people, I, I think, can can understand that. And I also want to note that, uh, that we recently got a um, our, our well, our one of our member projects, uh, wine got a donation from someone who said that, uh, well, they said that the that wine saved their lives. And the reason why they said that was because they were really they had to use some proprietary soft some Windows software for a class they were taking, and they absolutely had to take it. And wine allowed them to, um, to be able to do that on their GNU Linux box. I guess the final thing, this is somewhat self promotional <laughs> for us, but uh, lots of universities have budgets to bring outside speakers uh, in in technology. And uh, Karen and I and Deb Nicholson, who also works for Conservancy, generally speaking, uh, scheduling permitted, uh, if you can get travel expenses covered, we can come speak at your university, and we would be glad to do that. And while we're there, we could maybe go with you to talk to your professors about this question. Uh, so so look into that. A lot of student groups have budget that they can bring a speaker you know, once a semester or something like that. And, and if you can fund our travel expenses, we can often come if we can fit it into our schedules. Yeah, talking to students is one of the most important things. Getting Spreading the word about software freedom in the university setting is probably one of the most important areas for advocacy for this whole movement. So any more questions from our live, or not live, but recorded studio audience? Our, our, we have, do you have one, Mike? Yeah, go ahead. On that point, on a recent episode, Karen, you mentioned, I guess, teaching at your alma mater, perhaps, working at a university. Can you tell us about that? 
Uh, yeah, I'm teaching a class at Columbia Law School. Um, it's it's pretty fun. Um, what to say about it? Uh, I I have to say that I I didn't think that I would like teaching so much, but it turns out that it's so much fun, and law students are just such brilliant, critical people, you know. And I think one of the things that I love about working in free software is that it's full of brilliant critical people. I love the fact that Conservancy's biggest supporters are always the first people to tell us when they think we're screwing up. Um, I love it so much. And I and um, and part and like working with students is sort of like, um, you know, is is a very similar thing. And I, I, I think that's great. But I would say that one of the most rewarding experiences that I had was uh, going in to talk at, um, at Hunter College to um, just as a guest teacher um, for computer science students, uh, just locally in New York City where I live, and um, you know, I think hearing what people like people's first reaction, really smart, um, insightful questions that people have when they have no preconceptions about these ideas, is the most educational for us who have been around in the field for a long time. And if we don't, you know, we have to keep our mission fresh. And it has to be relevant to everyone, and especially young people today, in order for us to be able to make any difference. So another submitted question here. Someone uh, asks, is it a good policy and or strategy to have a sunset clause in your copyleft license, uh, specifically mm -hmm. referring to the uh, copyleft uh, next uh, sunset clause? And why or why not? And the question notes that it seems kind of strange that you would want to sunset your copyleft. So I think to answer that first, we have to explain what copyleft next is, because some of our listeners might not know that. So copyleft next is a, a project that was launched originally by uh, Richard Fontana uh, to create a copyleft license that was fully drafted in public by public discussion, uh, full disclosure, no lobbying, everyone working together in a community-oriented way. In the way you develop a free software project, apply that to a drafting of a copyleft license. And at one point, uh, and this has been in Copyleft Next for some time, uh, there was consensus on adding what was uh, basically called a sunset clause, which basically turned the copyleft license into a non-copyleft license after a certain period of time that was shorter than the time of the copyright statute. And I think that the, the, the trade-offs with that are many people in free software really are bothered by the expansiveness of copyright and are concerned that copyright was not a particularly good tool to use for software. And in fact, the origins of copyleft are centered around the idea of using this thing that was really not that appropriate at all for software as a way, as a tool to advance software freedom. Yeah, I think the first time that the word copyleft was used was uh, was not by Richard Salman, but uh, and it wasn't the idea of copyleft, but it was uh, copyleft, all wrongs reversed, was what that person used. And I think that that was sort of like an inspiration uh, for Richard Stallman. And I think that like that idea that the developers in particular are, are frustrated by the expansiveness of, of copyright is baked into the very beginning of free software. And certainly as we've seen companies like Disney use copyright, where they're, they've got basically multi-generational copyright at this point, which was clearly never the constitutional intention, at least in the United States, for what would happen with copyright. Um, it's understandable that a consensus could be reached that, hey, maybe after n number of years, I think we could debate about how many years, 
uh, the copyleft should just kind of degrade into a, a public domain-like scenario uh, because we kind of want to create policy that we think makes sense. And certainly having copyright on software live forever, how useful is it really? Uh, and one of the things I want to point out is that um, <laughs> the sunset clause is not as instantaneous as you think. If you have a project that's being actively developed, i.e. people are making changes every day, they are generating new copyrighted changes every day. So the copyright is effectively refreshed, right? There are copyrights on their changes. They've made a derivative work. They've added changes. So the whole works copyright is active in that sense. So like when you make a change to the program for the first time in 2020, um, you add, you can add a copyright notice, copyright 2020 to the files you're changing. And then that starts the clock again on these sunset clauses. Um, so this sunset clause that's in copyleft next would generally only apply to works that are basically abandoned. No one's working on them actively and, or old versions of currently active works. And I think in those cases, I, I'm not, I'm not, concerned as a policy matter about sunset clauses. I don't, I, I think they're more of a political statement about how you feel about copyright than they are all that important because most of the stuff that's going to fall probably is not that useful software anyway. Yeah. Since this is a, a, a podcast and not a, uh, and not a talk, um, <laughs> I, I, I want to do this like little slight sidebar about, uh, about Disney and copyright because, oh my gosh, they are so insidiously genius. Like, uh, it's amazing. They you mean um, in, in like the Descartesian evil genius sense. Well, so so everybody knows that uh, that Disney has been very successful in lobbying for the extension of copyright, um, and uh, and they're coming up on the end of what they'll be able to get for Mickey Mouse. Um, and Mickey Mouse is 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 soon to enter the public domain. But what Disney has done is they have made Mickey Mouse a trademark. Steamboat Willie. They have made Steamboat Steamboat Willie into a trademark. And the way that I realized this was that my children were watching um, a, a Disney movie, and uh, and the little Steamboat Willie cartoon came up, and they started to cheer. That it was so. It was, it, they start, and every time they see it, they say it's Frozen, it's Disney. Like they they connect that little cartoon which they play now. At they have like a little clip of Steamboat Willie at the beginning of every Disney movie, and it is an identifier. So unrelated to copyright, when people see Steamboat Willie, they associate it with Disney, and so it it signifies an origin of goods and trademark is evergreen so long as consumers associate that mark with an with a source of goods they still have that trademark protection oh, so i, I want to cl ask a clarification question because i don't watch disney movies as it turns out um because <laughs> i haven't seen this but but it but i think what you're saying <laughs> is they're basically using a clip of steamboat willie as kind of like their title card um, for the, the corporate, corporate every, title card. Yeah. At the beginning of every movie, the first thing that you see, like sort of how you may have seen, like um, I forget which which uh, film studio it was, you would see the lion or... The bouncing yeah, the bouncing lamp from Pixar, someone in the yeah. audience is saying, yep. Um, it's it's exactly it's exactly like that. So you, oh, you mean little, it's just like the MGM lion, right? A, like yes, it's a very but, yeah. short animated clip of Steamboat Willie on a ship. And more so, whenever my children see a... Uh, a ship, like a, a steering wheel from a ship, they say, "Oh, just like Disney." You know, like they they really and they they like really associate Steamboat Willie and Mickey Mouse with Disney. It is genius, insidiously genius. So we have another question from Carol Smith in the audience. Uh, so, as you may or may not know, it's coming up on the end of the decade. 
And so I have a two-part question, uh, which is, what do you think have been uh, the biggest achievements either of conservancy or of the free software movement generally in the last decade? And what do you see coming up for, for conservancy and free software in the next decade? That's an easy question. No, I'm okay, go ahead. No, I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you claim it was easy, so you have to answer it. No, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I, I was joking because I don't think that's easy. It's hard, you know, hard on the spot to think about the last 10 years. I mean... I think for conservancy, I, I, I would say that one of our big successes has been um, outreachy, the expansion of outreachy, um, outreachy, which is a diversity initiative that has uh, paid remote internships uh, for folks that are subject to uh, systemic bias or impacted by underrepresentation. Um, we've been able to build and grow this program so that now almost 600 people have participated in the program, um, which has created real opportunities for people who wouldn't otherwise. And I think that for many of the communities that participate in Outreachy, that's changed the face of their community. So quite a few of the projects that have participated in Outreachy have had have had part graduates of the program who then take leadership positions in those projects. We even have one participant who not only became a mentor, but when she became a mentor, her mentee became a mentor. And I believe that that mentee also became a mentor. And so there's this like building these, um, these mechanisms for, uh, for building mentorship and inclusion. And I, I think that's pretty great. So I think it, the, for me, the answer for conservancy <laughs> is pretty easy uh, because if you're going to line it up with the decade, which of course is arbitrary, uh, conservancy had no staff. Uh, it was all oh. volunteer from 2006 to uh, the middle of 2010, end of 2010, actually. So we have a staff of six at conservancy, five uh, full-time and one part-time people. Is that when get those numbers right? Mm. Um, and so we have a staff, which we didn't have at the beginning. Uh, and so that... I think, I think that staffing nonprofits is really important. Um, I think a lot of charities spend sometimes decades running as a only volunteer oriented organization. And uh, I think, I think that the, allowing somebody to focus full time on that. I, I, I always laugh when I hear, like I hear people who work for companies and they say, oh, I only have like three people working for me. I only have 20 people working for me. Like I can't get anything done. And I'm just like, I'm just like, well, like if we had 20 people at Conservancy, like I, there's just project after project that we put on the back burner because we don't have staff. Um, and so, and so it, it, charities do very little, very much with very little, that we get very little resources and have to get a lot done. And the other thing is, is that we turn from be, not only to be, get staffed up by mostly initially uh, kind of corporate uh, kind of uh, charitable donations. We're now primarily funded by individuals and we hope that everyone listen to the podcast and everybody in the room will become a conservancy supporter by the end of the year. Uh, that would be wonderful. Uh, so, so you will get those numbers up before the next decade. But uh, I think that we're now that we're primarily funded by individual donors, that is really an assurance that we can continue to focus on what's right for software freedom for users, as opposed to being ever, uh, you know, unduly influenced by some corporate um, uh, entity. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, that it's a whole, it's a, it's a decade of conservancy staffing. And also, I wasn't thinking about it, but that I think the first outreachy round when it was outreach program for women at GNOME was in 2010. So like, it's also like coming up on that decade. Yeah, I think for, for free, software freedom in general, it's been a rough, it's been a rough 10 years, I think, <laughs> yes. because, because I think, I think that we, uh, that we were in a really good spot in the late 2000s and a number of things changed, particularly the, you know, deployment of, of JavaScript as the primary 
application language, JavaScript and phone apps as the primary way that people uh, use and interact with software, uh, the average user. Uh, and the fact that free software did not have a, like free software as a large global community did not have a plan for how we were going to build uh, applications uh, in JavaScript and for, for, you know, app environments that were uh, free software. We had plenty of infrastructure, right? I mean, most of the web infra infrastructure underneath, including most JavaScript implementations, are all free software themselves, but the actual applications are not. And I think we've seen an incredible growth and territory take back by proprietary software at the top of the stack. And then at the bottom of the stack, which we thought we'd won um, from uh, our ARM processors and other small processors became so cheap that every peripheral is basically a computer onto itself, such that now even hard drives are operating systems that are completely proprietary. And so at a moment when we had fully free software, uh, everything running great, probably around 2010, suddenly now it's very hard even at the bottom and the top of the stack to get all free software. Yep. I think looking forward, I think that so many people are understanding how bad the state of our technology is. And it's reaching mainstream media that we have this amazing opportunity right now. I mean, I can tell you that, like, for example, in my family events, when uh, when my extended family gets together, for years, I've been talking about software freedom with mixed results. When my family is with me, they say, that sounds so important. And then they go away, and they forget everything that I said. And then the next time I see them, they say, oh, I got a new iPhone. Whoops. I know you don't like that. You know, I'll let, hide that from Karen, you know, whereas something has fundamentally changed in the last couple of years where now at these family functions, people are like, Karen, I really want to understand better all the things you've been saying because I haven't really been listening. And now I'm beginning to understand this is really important. And I think we're seeing that in terms of um, how mainstream media is starting to deal with these issues. And I I think that um, that we at Conservancy and we as activists are starting to get more traction, um, you know, with people who are interested in shedding light on these issues. So I think there's just a massive opportunity to talk about software freedom and to convince people that this is a really important thing that we need to focus on. So I want to take another of our written questions that were submitted over the last two days of the conference. Uh, so this questioner asks, um, the copyright alternative in small claims enforcement, or abbreviated CASE Act, uh, provides an option to handle copyright disputes outside of the federal courts. Could this be helpful in GPL enforcement, and why or why not? So to explain a little bit about what this is, uh, so there, I mean, there's been many attempts at reform of various copyright trademark patent laws over time. The, the patent statute was updated a, a few years ago and not in a great way. Um, so this was in addition, I, I, my understanding was originally was proposed as more of a comprehensive overhaul of the copyright system. And because lobbyists, um, it was kind of relegated to the smaller uh, additional change uh, to the copyright system. And what the the law does, uh, I, I, I won't get... The, I'll, and it's not enacted, right? It's just... Um, I think it was enacted this year, or it's, it was, about, it's, it's about voted, to be I think it was enacted by... Um, by the house, but I don't mm. think that I, I'm, I'm actually not sure. I haven't yeah. been following this. But, as uh, but I uh, been. yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with the basics of what the legislation proposes, and what it proposes is to basically create something somewhat similar to what the trademark office already has. So a lot of people don't realize that many trademark disputes. So when some, when two people have a trademark, um, if they have a dispute, uh, they can go to federal court. Uh, they're allowed to do that. Uh, but there's a uh, thing called the what's it, the trademark trial and tribunal. 
board is that what it's called T-TAB is yeah, the abbreviation I'm it up now. and it's an administrative body so it's it's not in the judicial branch you know that most people who are in the US know that there're you know three branch, roughly three branches of government um the, the judicial the legislative and the executive branch so the T-TAB uh, in this trademark case is, is under the administrative branch not under the judicial branch but it kind of acts like a court so it's a place you can follow a dispute and the 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 reason uh, people like these kinds of uh, administrative processes is they're usually quicker, they're less expensive than federal litigation. They don't tie up the federal courts, which are often often hard to get court dates in the federal courts, uh, particularly in uh, cases related to trademark copyrights and patents. Um, And I I suspect, although I don't know this is the case, I suspect um, drafters of this legislation kind of looked at the TTAB and said, oh, well, there's kind of this administrative body for trademarks. Maybe we should have a similar administrative body under the Library of Congress's Copyright Office for copyrights. well, there's a number of different problems like that. I'm reminded a lot of uh, – people have probably heard a lot about protests uh, regarding arbitration clauses where your employer, instead of being allowed to go to the courts, uh, you have to agree to arbitration by some third-party body. This is kind of creating an administrative branch arbitration body for copyright cases. Um, now, it could benefit some people in some cases. Certainly, uh, the the obvious benefit that might be there for copyleft as well, we've always talked about how copyleft enforcement is very expensive. It's expensive to go to court. Court. A lot of times companies know this, so they don't come into compliance and they say, well, fine, take us to court and we know we have more money than you, so we'll do better in court. So you kind of look at it and say, well, if it was an administrative process, it's cheaper, maybe we could use it. Um, but the main thing the administration process is not offering us uh, is the same problem we have in the regular courts. Uh, courts and any, any, any kind of body like this tends to want to give you um, financial uh rewards as a remedy for some issue or claim you're putting forward. Well, we don't really care so much about money in copyleft. We care about software freedom. We care about uh, special performance, which is what the courts tend to call it. We want the company. Specific specific, Did I say special again? I asked Karen before we did the podcast, (laughs) so I didn't say it wrong. Specific performance. So we want them specifically do something. We want them to give us source code for the device that has Linux or whatever copyrighted software in it. So to get them to do this specific performance, it's hard to get a court to order that. Well, under this new case thing, there is really no opportunity for that at all. There's just an opportunity to get maybe money quickly. Yeah, I mean, so I just want to confirm it was passed in the House, but not in the Senate. And that just happened like a couple of weeks ago. Um, So it's not real law yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, But there was but when it passed in the House, it was with overwhelming support. So, you know, we'll see what happens. But uh, but no, I mean, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, there's a lot of question marks around this legislation if it comes into effect. Like, you know, there it sounds like there's a lot of discretion that will be given to this uh, to uh, to the the administrative body. Uh, but you can opt out of it. Um, the problem is, is that is that so I, people like this because it will give copyright holders that don't have a lot of resources, some alternative method for, for, for being heard. And, you know, copyright has had a really high boundary and the way that copyright law works is very imbalanced. I mean, this is true of the American legal system in general, and maybe most legal systems in general, that those parties who have more legal resources are the ones who tend to have things go more their way because they have the money to litigate. And in the U.S. court system, you can really drown an opponent in litigation if you have the resources to do it. And a lot of um, a lot of the, the individuals... Wait, are you saying financially privileged people get their way more often than unfinancially privileged people? What a surprise! <laughs> yeah. And I, I think this is an, an inequity that is baked into our 
legal system and it's uh, it's wrong and it's problematic and there are no great solutions to the problem. Um, I'm grateful that there are, um, you know, there are different initiatives to try to help provide resources to those who don't have any, um, who are, who don't have resources. And so I think that that's a really good impulse. But on the other hand, I think it's like, so here's an example, as I was saying that under this law, you can opt out as a defendant if you would rather not be, you know, if you'd rather have your, your day in court. Uh, but you have to know about it in order to do that. And there is a short period of time for you to be able to do that. And it's unclear how those notices will be sent and what you'll be able to do. On the, on the other hand, you don't have to necessarily register your work in order to um, in order to make a claim, and that really empowers people who who don't have resources. So yeah, you know. and, and, and it's very common uh, with regard to registration. Uh, Karen mentioned so in the United States, when you enforce uh, copyrights, and of course, copyleft enforcement is an enfor- usually an enforcement of copyrights. Uh, you. If you have a registration, which means you've mailed your like copyright specimen off to the copyright office and filed out, filled out some paperwork, um, you have access to more rem- remedies. Again, usually more more financial uh, uh, remedies than than anything else. Um, but uh, not having to register would be helpful to free software projects. Uh, the the thing is, is that debating this is is almost moot for folks like us, and here's why: because. Free software does not have a lobbying arm, <laughs> um, unfortunately. I think uh, Mako Hill has pointed out that we maybe screwed that up, uh, and uh, may our listeners are familiar with his with his comments on this, uh, which I'll link to in the show notes. Uh, but given that we don't have anybody to go lobby on this and actually push forward a free software agenda, we can armchair analyze the law as it goes through the the, the legislative, and if it's signed into law, I think we we'll probably would try it. Uh, I would expect. I would certainly go look at whether to try it. Um, but knowing whether it's going to be good for free software uh, or or not, like until we try it, we won't really know. And we don't have any real opportunity to influence the legislation because we don't have lobbyists in there. Yeah, uh, details will make a big difference in this. And I, you know, I, I think as Mako has pointed out, FSFE has done some good work and and had some success in lobbying in Europe. Yeah, but not um, in the United States. And in the United States, organizations like Conservancy are prevented from doing much lobbying uh, because we're mm-hmm. charities. Yeah. But I have heard folks uh, who are interested in starting a lobbying organization, and that's been sort of discussed for a few years. Yeah. So maybe by the this way, will be I, the I have, I have some idea I would to do it. I would love to advise anyone who wants to do that. Obviously, Conservancy can't become a lobbying organization. We're, we're legally prohibited from doing that. But we I can be, do small amounts. But the small amount that I would be glad to do is if someone wants to start a lobby lobbying organization for free software, I have some ideas about how you might be able to fund it because uh, you have access to funding mechanisms that charities do not. So if anybody who is listening like is like, I want to start the free software lobbying organization, I, I would be glad to chat with you about my ideas of how you might pull it off. Not a thing I want to do because I don't really want to be a lobbyist. I don't. Th- I don't want to be good at it either. I, it's. I don't think it's our. We're really charitable focused people. Yeah. Like I don't know that you know. And and you know I like. But I, we we should be doing a, a a very tiny amount as per as what we're allowed to do. And I think most of what we can do is education. I think a lot of these laws are being made by folks that have very little understanding about the realities of our technology and how it really works. And I think we're never going to have any success until that changes. And. Yeah, and so, someone from FSFE, uh, I, I suppose correctly, once told me that I wouldn't be a good lobbyist because if you're, you can't tell someone they're wrong, and I tell people when I think they're wrong, you have to say you disagree, <laughs> even if they're wrong. And so, you know, if I think somebody's wrong, I usually tell them I think they're wrong, and that doesn't make you a good lobbyist. You're wrong. <laughs> we have a question from the audience. I think there's a mic uh, or a, a recording device over on that side. Uh, there it is. Here it comes. Okay, um, I'm wondering if. 
Mozilla Corporation. So Mozilla has like the overall foundation, but then as a subsidiary, they have, as I understand it, Mozilla Corporation, or maybe it's the other way around. I wonder if that would be like a good place to do lobbying because it is a corporation and not a nonprofit. Oh, I don't know how that works. So, so Mozilla is a fascinating uh, organization in its architecture, right? It's so the Mozilla Foundation is also a charity, and then it has a wholly owned subsidiary. I think it's a wholly owned. LLC, where the only member is the foundation, and then it's a for-profit uh, uh, LLC, and then the, the basically that operates as a for-profit, and then any revenue that comes out can go to the foundation. Karen, can you explain what an LLC is? A limited liability company. But what's what's that mean? Like like let's walk our listeners through it. Like, right. So when you form an LLC, right, so you can you have members. Yeah, you have members and you can have, you know, often it's it's multiple members. And then the um, the LLC exists as a corporate entity that, as the name suggests, shields the members from liability if, if as they as it would be if they were just acting as individuals. Um, and when you have an LLC, you can have, uh, you know, it doesn't like. You can you can have a lot of members, or you can have one member. And so, um, so I actually did set this up once for a, um, a charity um, as well. And you just basically form an LLC, but instead of having you know a bunch of members, you just have it entirely held by the foundation. Mm-hmm. And then, from a tax perspective, you look at the unit as a whole. And so the whole of the the tax exemption is preserved, provided the whole is behaving correctly. I don't know how the lobbying thing works out for Mozilla Corporation. That's fascinating. And and it's it's worth noting that uh, Mozilla (laughs) um, had to undergo – eventually the IRS started to look a little sideways at what Mozilla was doing because uh, most of the money – when you hear about people working for Mozilla, uh, they probably work for MoCo, not MoFo. Because MoFo has very few employees. Right. Yeah, I think there's yeah. only a few employees of, of Mozilla Foundation MoFo. And MoFo is the abbreviation for the law firm Morrison and Forster. So every time people say, like, <laughs> in our community, it, most people mean Mozilla. Foundation. Aside from the other abbreviation of MoFo. Right. Um, so yeah. So but uh, but most everyone you know, like you've met at the conferences or whatever, work for Mozilla, work for MoCo, and uh, and so the IRS kind of got like, well, all this money is flowing through MoCo, and they weren't paying taxes either, generally speaking. Because while corporate uh, income is taxed, uh, it, they were spending all the money on employees, so they, you know, that was tax neutral, uh, and that's why they did that. But all the revenue was at that in those days when they were audited was coming uh, because they put the uh, Google ad bar in the Firefox browser, and Google was giving them money from that. And that was uh, w- if they'd taken it through the charity, it would have been um, unrelated business taxable income, which we've talked about before on the podcast, and they would have had to pay taxes on it. So they formed this LLC, were able to run all the money through there, make it tax neutral, and you know it's an inventive legal strategy, the IRS looked sideways and audited them. The IRS ultimately gave them a clean bill of health and said, you know, never seen this before, but it seems okay to us. And they passed the audit. But I suspect because Mozilla, neither entity was doing any lobbying at the time, I don't think they looked at that lobbying question in relation to this. They were more worried about do you have taxes you're supposed to be paying? Yeah. And there are, it's not like there are any public materials about this audit. We just happen to know. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, there's some public materials on Mozilla's website. Yeah, but it, but the, not on the IRS side. Like, it's not like yeah. the IRS had a process and they published their findings. Correct. But um, yeah. but Mozilla employees, um, Jerv actually, before he died, um, Jerv Markham <laughs> gave multiple talks where he talked about going through the audit process. So so there's documentation out there from Mozilla employees about going yeah. through it and so forth. Uh, we have another question for the audience. Um, yeah, so 
You mentioned uh, Mako's talk, I think you referenced that earlier on, about how maybe the free software community is not quite doing enough to prevent um, certain interests like large corporations from kind of subverting some of the models that they've used, like everybody collaborating together on something in an open space <coughs> to, to build a product that ultimately, uh, we don't prevent them from building something that takes advantage of people. And he mentioned a few things um, that he thought might help combat that going forward. And I mean, we just heard the question about um, how companies like Mozilla, I guess maybe it's a company, maybe it's a charity, um, can potentially lobby for that. What other, what other concrete things can people like us in the room do to help further the cause of software freedom um, in the face of these kinds of these kinds of new issues, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think that that software freedom. I, I'm just gonna say, it, I think a lot of people became really comfortable with the fact that they could have a job that pays them really well, where they could work on something that's open source, and like they could have their cake and eat it too. And you know, Bradley sometimes calls this the "gave at the office" mentality. Um, I think of it more as a uh, folks stopped thinking so critically about uh, about forwarding the movement because they felt like they were working on free and open source software and it just happened to be their job and how convenient and how nice. And it moved people from, uh, it changed people from working as volunteers on something that they cared about in an ideological way to it just being their day job. And I think we have to rethink that. We have to realize, like, you know, who's in control of our technology and what can we do to shake it up? Like, we were originally an ideological movement that uh, that we wanted to create software that was going to, you know, not just be disruptive, but empower users and empower developers to help empower users. You're, you're leaning in. I, I was I was checking. I was checking Mike's setup, uh, <laughs> which I do throughout the podcast. But uh, I did want to add uh, something, which was the um, the the. I think we have a moment in history uh, that's relatively special for free software. As bad as things have been recently, uh, we we look at things like the the question of, of whether Facebook was used to mess with U.S. elections. We look at questions where um, people are concerned about how much data that uh, the large companies that provide them. With most of their software uh, are using their data. And I think we have a moment to start to educate the average software user um, who is not paying for most of their software uh, financially anymore. I mean, there's this big thing in free software was like, oh, well, you know, people pay for proprietary software. How do we start them to stop giving money to proprietary software companies and give them money to free software to develop free software? Well, generally speaking, people don't pay for software anymore. The software that they use, like Facebook, they're paying for it by giving all their data about themselves over to the company. And people are starting to realize that that's a terrifying thing. And so explaining to people that, well, that's a trade-off. Maybe you don't want to make anymore. Maybe the price of Facebook is just too high uh, because it's not in dollars. It's in giving everything about yourself away to a company. And that's an actual wonderful moment for free software. I think it's a moment where we can say, well, if you paid for it and it didn't spy on you, maybe it would be a lot better. And I think that's not just true with things like Facebook, but it's true with things like IoT devices. Uh, we have this situation with doorbell cams now where uh, Amazon is going around to municipalities and convincing people to turn on as happening big. And I don't know if it's happening here in Seattle, but in Portland, uh, Oregon, where I live, uh, there's local news stories 
talking about, oh, well, if you click this box in Amazon, the police can look at your doorbell cam anytime they need to. And it can really control the, you know, the porch, uh, porch stealing of boxes and stuff. Also from Amazon, by the way. Um, if we just, you know, everybody just agrees to let the police look at your cam anytime they need to, because that's so much more convenient for them and they don't have to get a warrant and you've opted in. Yep. Uh, so, so we're creating the panopticon and we're putting a private company in charge of it, which yep. is just absolutely ridiculous and it should not happen. But the problem is, is that we can't, you can't just point that out and say, boy, this is terrible. You have to give an alternative. Like you can't just say, this sucks. You have to say, here's the path towards making a, a better solution that can answer these these problems. And, and that's one of the things that Conservancy is working on, that we really are focused on trying to find things that we can work on where we can provide a real path towards towards better software. Right. And I think on the IoT device side, uh, that's a much more possible opportunity. Uh, we've already seen with OpenWRT that when we got in there as a free software community and made an alternative firmware for the first IoT device, which was the wireless router, um, we were very successful. It's not that there aren't proprietary wireless routers out there, but it is not financially viable uh, long-term for a company to have a wireless router that OpenWRT does not run on. There are some, but they're rare. Most devices work with OpenWRT, so you can at least replace the vendor's firmware with your own. And there are even some vendors that ship OpenWRT. We need to look at every single device that people are installing in their homes and make sure that there's a free firmware. The ironic thing is most of these are Linux-based devices violating the GPL. <laughs> so we're already in these devices. We just have to get compliance with the GPL so that we can work on the alternative firmwares. Now, the user space stuff is all proprietary, and that's permitted under Linux's GPL. So we have to liberate, do two things. Liberate the Linux software which should have been liberated from the, fr the front and use the license to do that and then two write the user space software that replaces the spying technology with stuff that people have their own control of. Yeah and I think people don't really recognize that that when where we do have GPL software it doesn't magically give you give users rights it doesn't magically make it so that we have control over our own technology we need to have enforcement because Almost all of these devices are in violation. And when they're in violation, folks can't take their own devices and replace the software. You can't actually do anything about it. And so with at Conservancy, we're trying to, especially with our enforcement work, we're trying to focus on matters where people want to do something with their devices and they're frustrated. And so Copy Left is a tool to fight some of this lack of control we have over our critical technology, but it, it won't work unless there's compliance and there's no compliance without enforcement. Do we have more questions from the audience before we wrap up? Michael, you have a new question? Go ahead. Software patents have not been in the news. Was there a moment of progress that isn't super obvious and is the threat what it once was? There has been some progress. Uh, there's a case called Alice. However, software patents are still a real thing. And it, software patents have been in the news quite recently because the GNOME Foundation was sued by a patent troll over you know, over software, um, over, um, let me see if I remember this correctly, uh, over uh, Shotwell and, uh, and certain functionality uh, in Shotwell. And Conservancy, of course, has an interest in that, too, because we hold the copyrights on Shotwell. When Yorba wound up, they transferred them to us. Um, and so what, uh, so I think that the GNOME Foundation has sort of recently announced quite a few initiatives that indicate that they have some funds now that they have some resources. They launched um, some pretty uh, uh, big initiatives that had dollar amounts connected to them. And I think that 
caused the GNOME Foundation to rise in interest to these patent trolls. Um, and so, uh, and so this suit was filed and in the, um, to the, to GNOME's credit, uh, they basically stood up and said, no. Like the whole point of what these patent trolls do is they, um, they go after, uh, anyone they can who they think has the funds to do it. They file a lawsuit and then they agree to settle for some amount of money and they choose that amount of money such that it won't be that big a deal to settle. It's a significant chunk of money, but it's so much less than bringing a lawsuit and fighting over it and having to invest all those resources and all that time and all that effort that almost everybody winds up just settling. And they have that number really down pat. But with an organization like the Gnome Foundation, it's a completely different story. And so to Gnome's credit, they've stood up and they've said, no, nope, we are going to fight this. This is wrong. And they uh, they launched a funding campaign, which I think they managed to get funded in um, in less than a week. And um, and so we'll be watching that with interest. And we know that uh, we at Conservancy are, are rooting for Gnome and are happy to support them however they can. However, so, we can. So I, I mean, I think I think the the patent holders attacking. I mean, I, I think it was just bad strategy for them to yeah. to not think and attack somebody like the Gnome Foundation, who basically is the, like, there's nothing bad you can really say about the Gnome yeah, Foundation, and especially after the Groupon thing, right? <laughs> uh, like yeah, exactly. when when Groupon caused this huge uh, reaction when they were infringing on the the Gnome trademark and seeing how yeah, you should explain to folks who might not know because it was a while ago. Yeah, what, yeah. What so, so Groupon was. launched a product that uh, that was, was going to be named Gnome, right? Yeah, I think they were calling it Genome, but it was spelt the same way. It was like G with a dash and N O M E, and it was uh, and it was like um, you know effectively desktop software. It was for, a point, a point, of, a point sale of sale device. desktop device. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and that was the software on it, and uh, and they clearly knew that Gnome existed, or folks in there in Groupon knew that Gnome existed because it was they, a Linux-based device, even. Yeah, well, I don't remember the details on, on the, the actual uh, software on it, but, uh, but when, and then when, um, when, and so I was, I think I was on the board still of the GNOME Foundation. Yeah. And so when we asked the, uh, we asked Groupon to, to, to stop using that name for their mm-hmm. product, they then responded by filing more registrations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we basically went public and said, this is terrible. Can y'all donate some money for us to be able to try to fight this? And we got, I think it, we uh, we got uh, more than fully funded in 24 hours, and uh, and unfortunately, well, I don't know. Fortunately, unfortunately, the way it worked out, we would never have sanctioned this or encouraged this. But Groupon got DDoS, and like it was this, they they were basically, hmm. you know, capitulating hmm. uh, right away because they didn't realize the power of the GNOME community and how much people care about free software hmm. and how much of a community we are and how we band together. And so it's amazing to me that after the whole Groupon thing that this patent troll would particularly choose GNOME as a target. Yeah. And I should mention the the lawyer that uh, worked on that case <laughs> is uh, Pam Chestick, who is uh, also a Conservancy's lawyer these days as yeah. well. She's well, Pam a, and I tag teamed yeah. it and it was so much fun because we, uh, there was one particular day where we were working, we were negotiating with, um, with Groupon lawyers and she and I were both traveling that day and our flights were staggered and so uh, and so one of like we would one of us would land and the other was on the plane waiting to take off and I'd be like okay I talked to their lawyers and um, and here's where we left it now it's on you tag and then uh, and then the other would so then the other person would get up in the air and we would trade back and forth and we basically did that the whole day and negotiated the the close of that matter it was yeah. great so uh, although I want to get back to Michael's question because 
was uh, he was asking specifically about the question of patents and and they have that they haven't been in the news. I think mainstream. the uh, mainstream news. Well, well, and, and any, well, I want to address the any news uh, question because I think the, the worst thing about the U.S. patent system uh, with regards to patents that uh, read on software um, is all the patent uh, uh, attacks that happen that w w no one ever knows about. Um, so there's this huge industry coalition uh, in the software industry of large patent holders who who just love to talk about trolls and how bad trolls are and that trolls are the big problem. They are the biggest trolls in the patent world. They just don't like these little trolls cutting in on their big trolling business. If you look at a company like IBM, which is the largest uh, holder of uh, uh, patents that read on software in the world, they love to go around to companies that are just getting started and say, gee, uh, we noticed your company, nice company you got here. Uh, we just wanted to bring you this little binder we have. Well, actually, it's a kind of big binder we have of all the patents we have that read on your technology. And we really don't think we want to get into litigation about these patents, but we have this very generous acquisition offer that we'd like to put on the table for you. So we're going to put this binder down of all the patents we hold next to this binder, which you will find is a beautiful aqua hire offer for your company. And this is how IBM does business. So, so it's, it's, and, and the weird thing is, is VC backed companies don't mind this so much because their investors are getting money back uh, from the company. Like, Oh, we invested, you know, 5 million in this company. And then IBM, came along and offered his 20 million for the company out. Oh, well, that's a, you know, that's a you know, positive and not 15 million on the books. That looks pretty good. Um, those numbers might even have another couple zeros behind them. Right. So, so it, it, this is just so disturbing that we don't have the kind of diversity we should have in the way uh, software companies are built in part because of the secret enforcement mechanism of software patents happening behind the scenes. And IBM's not the, only offender, they're just the worst offender. I don't like. I don't disagree with that necessarily, but I think that generally, when people mean patent trolls, they're talking about non-practicing entities, which are people who. Oh, are I, I think I think practicing entity controls are much worse than non-practicing entity controls. In fact, I'd like to see more. This is where I'm much more radical in care. I would love to see more non-practicing. Like I would love to see non-practicing entity controls be so bad that it completely brings the entire industry to a halt. That there's just so many lawsuits and okay. so many shakedowns. What is it that you said to me earlier? You know what? You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I have a follow oh, follow-up question. I have a follow-up to the patent question, which is, um, although I'm not actually really that familiar with the details, I think uh, patents have been in the news recently because the Supreme Court recently decided to hear the Oracle v. Google case. And I was curious if you guys had any thoughts on that case or uh, any, any additional uh, information for the free software community we could be there looking is, for. Uh, uh, there, somebody asked via Twitter the same question, but I challenged them to ask it because we're at Siegel. I challenged them to ask the question with bird puns. <laughs> so I feel like I should really, um, I should really read it. So hold what, on. What, what, wait, why do we want bird puns? I'm confused. Because we're at seagull. Right. Seagull. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which is a clever backronym for Seattle GNU Linux, right? Okay. And uh, and they are super into the fact that this sounds like um, like the bird named Seagull. And in fact, they have an inflatable seagull on the stage during the keynotes. And in the registration area, there's another inflatable um, seagull. And so it seems fully appropriate. 
If you could say something for two seconds while I... Uh, are you sure this is going to be all it's quacked up to me? <laughs> well, while, while we are doing this, I will, I will point out that um, the Oracle v. Google case is really complicated because it is both a patent and a copyright case um, that ended up primarily in patent court uh, up until now. Uh, so it went this track uh, that was patent focused, uh, and then the patent courts had to make decisions about copyright cases, and then it got appealed multiple times. And so now, I think one of the really, well, one of the positive things I will say about what's happening now is I think it's good that the Supreme Court, which is the highest court it can go to, is now going to hear the case and look into both of the questions. Right, because they denied cert originally um, when this was appealed, and then it went back and there was a decision on fair use, and now the, now the whole thing is appealed. So it's unclear exactly what the Supreme Court will consider. Yeah, and I, I think the other thing that I, I would want to mention is that is that um, it's important to remember that um, that courts uh, that. The, 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 the courts, so we look at the, we look at a court and we often talk about some of the big issues of the day, uh, various social justice issues and get concerned about how the court might rule one way or the other on them. Um, the, 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 I think, I think copyright and patents are interesting because, uh, I don't think we really know. Obviously, when they, uh, uh, confirm Supreme Court justices, no one asks questions in Congress about, in the Senate about, like, what's your view on copyright? What's your view on patents? So we kind of don't know, uh, per se, uh, what the very justices feel about this and people we think of as like justice on one side or the other might come out very differently uh, when they hear yeah. a, a what's interesting is. is that many of these people get some revenue from copyright royalties from publication that they or publications that they or their uh, family members have uh, have published and so and I don't think that those justices will be recusing themselves even though they may receive revenues from copyrights and so I think that's really interesting but I did find the tweet. So I would say that the, uh, so it was originally a question. So we got the question written by an attendee of this conference, um, uh, before it was asked here in the room. But then, uh, Molly DeBlanc asked the question over, um, uh, over, uh, I think Mastodon and Twitter. And, uh, and VM Brasseur said, with the SCOTUS decision to undertake not only the Oracle v. Google case, but also the question of CERD, is it more likely Foss will be free as a bird or that its chances will have flown the coop? So the other thing that um, the, the other th I, I, the, the interesting thing, and, and we've and we've commented publicly about this uh, quite a bit. Um, it, it's a complicated decision with regard to copyright. Uh, remember that. Copyleft is built on top of copyright, and so we talked earlier uh, in the show today about the question of sunset clauses and should we take copyright all the way to the end as far as Disney takes it with copyleft licenses. I think the question of whether a expansion of copyright is good for copyleft or not and therefore good for free software is an interesting question. The most important issue to keep uh, to keep in mind is that copyleft is a strategy. It's not like a principle unto itself. So software freedom, the right to copy, share, and modify and distribute, that's a moral and ethical principle that we talk about. And copyleft is just a strategy. And so we have to look at a case like this when, at least when the part that relates to copyright, not patent, and say, 
is it going to make copyleft more likely to work as a strategy against those who would use the copyright law on proprietary? Or is it going to be so um, good for proprietary companies to have copyright work this way? Is that going to make copyleft not as useful as a tool? And so we have to, we have to kind of look at that question in a more nuanced way than just, well, copyright law, copyright law is a bad system and it'd be better if it went away. Well, we probably all agree with that, but it's not going to go away. And so therefore copyleft will remain important. And therefore we have to look at these cases in terms of will it make the strategy of copyleft work better or worse? Yeah. And cert was just granted. I think this is just so, uh, folks that are listening to the recording, it was, this was, this is like literally yesterday's news. Mm. So, uh, um, mid-November yeah yeah so I think you know we're gonna we're gonna be looking at it and you know I I, I think I think a lot of people have a lot to say in the interim yeah and and I, I just as a this is my personal view about how the US uh, judicial system works um, I'm always I, I can't think of a Supreme Court case in my lifetime where I was for a decision not to grant cert I think uh, and by the way we should explain for listeners who don't know granting cert means we will hear the case <laughs> right so the Supreme Court always has the prerogative to just say well we don't want to hear it uh, we think the lower courts dealt with it um, we, we don't want to hear it it's not really on our purview we're not interested whatever um, um, they do, and they can do this capriciously. They can just decide they don't want to hear it. But it's a, it's it's kind of a sneaky way, from my point of view, to affirm the lower court's decision because the lower court's decision is going to stand at least in the district where that lower court operates until it goes to the Supreme Court some other way. So I, I would rather like I'm just more for like let's have more discussion, let's have more people look into this, let's have the highest court in the land consider it. So I'm just generally as on principle like grant cert every time. Oh, you think they should grant cert? I think I think the Supreme Court should grant cert a lot more yeah. than they do. They've been using yeah. I mean, the last limited, 30, 40 years, they've been using no cert as yeah. a as a tool to just avoid issues. And yeah. I think that's unfortunate. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad they granted cert. And I think that there is a real circuit split in these decisions and like in these these matters. And I think having some clarity will be interesting. I mean, I uh, that said, I think we really will will need to speak up to sort of represent free software's interests. So, so I'm not I'll, promising anything, but we're gonna definitely So we're consider. almost out of time, so I think we're gonna take our last question for the audience before we wrap off the show go ahead well i just kind of wanted to follow up on sure. on the supreme court case what do you think would be the worst case scenario that could come out of the out of a decision one way or the other that and how it relates to free software or the best case scenario as well i don't know if i have an answer yet i, yeah. th I think we have i think we uh, i mean the, the fortunate thing about how supreme court processes go is that they take some time right they've just granted cert um i don't think they'll they'll hear the case for another year right uh is that, is that probably right i would actually think? i'm not sure roughly because so. when their session so the session will they hear at the session necessarily um, but even if they hear at the session it, it it won't probably be heard for like six months from now there won't be a decision for about eight months even if it's the session right because their session goes to usually the summer so yeah, right there are the hearings and then there's some right time right so and there'll be time for amicus and briefs uh and uh and uh, uh um and all that sort of thing so i i think that, that one of the reasons so people complain about court things taking a long time i think the uh, the advantage of right this case is from what year like 20 like i know there was a decision in the 2014 original, the original case yeah right? but yeah, i think it was but, before that but the upside to courts taking a long time 
um, is that it gives uh, people like, like like Conservancy who who haven't have, you know are concerned about how the case might come out um, opportunity to think about it and consider and so forth. Um, and I think that that's that that it's good that we have this time. And since we're recording this on the day after cert was granted, now we can actually consider the question that you're asking and say, well, well, what, what is the right policy question for free software? Um, and that's and that's not a that's not a question that I would want to answer quickly. I'd want to you know talk to you know legal counsel or experts in copyright. And all that sort of stuff before coming to like this is absolutely the right thing. I think I think it's it's pretty trivial to say yes, granting cert was a good idea, but coming yeah. with the right policy, like uh, to to say you know launch an amicus brief that that takes time. I'll go so far as to say that how I've sort of felt about this case is very nuanced because you know to the extent that we're in a copyright maximalist world, then boy, copy left is even stronger, and to the extent that. Uh, fair use is in- enhanced, then boy, we can share a lot more. So, you know, I, I am an optimist by nature. And <laughs> so, you know, there, to some extent, there's a little bit of a win-win here for free software, um, and for copyleft in particular. I, I, I don't know. Um, I think that the worst case scenarios probably pay, play out in not so much in the decision, but how the industry moves following whatever decision it is. So with that, I think we have to wrap up. I want to thank Siegel for allowing us to have our first live podcast ever. I want to thank our live audience uh, who is here in the room with us today. Can we hear from our audience again? Free as in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of danlynch.org. That's D-A-N-L-Y-N-C-H dot O-R-G. The Free as in Freedom theme music was written by Mike Tarantino and is performed by Mike Tarantino with Charlie Paxton on drums. You can learn more about our work at the Software Freedom Conservancy at the website SF conservancy.org. Conservancy is a 501c3 charity and is supported by your donations. An RSS feed for this show is available from faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot U-S. All episodes of Freeism Freedom are licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. <laughs> I paused it by mistake. All right, so Karen, Karen screwed up that, so we have to so we have to do that again. What did you do to this thing? I picked it up and I pressed a button. And you're I'm not supposed sure. to press any buttons. I, I said that at the beginning. Press a button. Oh, now we have a funny outtake too um, from that mic. Uh, <laughs> Amusing finale. You made it so I can't one. even record anymore. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. here we go. I got it recording. It. Okay. I want to thank again our live studio audience for this podcast. Thanks so much, everyone. That was so much fun.